Hello, everyone, and welcome to the November 10th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. An injured worker lost his malpractice claim in the Court of Appeal. Here's what happened in the unpublished case of Hamp versus Harrison, Patterson, and others. Richard Hamp Sr. worked as a ready-mix concrete driver for Hanson Aggregates Pacific Southwest. The job includes driving and delivering concrete materials and requires the driver to load and unload concrete material through heavy chutes. Hamp injured his back at work in 2004 and filed a workers' compensation claim. He was on medical leave for the next several years. His employer made a decision to terminate Mr. Hamp based on its conclusion that Hamp's injuries precluded him from performing the key functions of his job. But Hanson Pacific did not send a letter to Hamp notifying him of this decision. Later, Hamp contacted Hanson Pacific and inquired about his employment status and first learned that he had been terminated. The next month, in 2007, the employer sent him a letter confirming his 2006 termination. The employer claimed that it had been willing to seek to accommodate his disabilities before it terminated him, but Hamp never responded to its inquiries and letters. Hamp denied this version of events and maintained that he had asked for accommodations, but the employer never responded to his requests. Hamp retained attorney Harry Harrison in 2008 to bring a lawsuit challenging his employment termination. In his deposition, Hamp acknowledged he still had back problems and never received medical clearance to return to his ready mixed driver job. When asked if he thinks he is physically capable of returning to work as a ready mixed driver, Hamp responded, I can't answer that. I don't know. He said he was not sure whether the problem would flare up if he returned to his job. Hamp also indicated he agreed with his PTP's certification to the Employment Development Department in 2007 that he was not capable of returning to work because he could not perform the physical duties of the ready-mix driver job. Despite this deposition testimony, his attorney defeated the employer's summary judgment motion on Hamp's wrongful termination claim based on evidence showing it failed to make efforts to accommodate Hamp's disability. Later, attorney Harrison wrote to Hamp explaining the weaknesses in his case and urged Hamp to accept Hanson Pacific's $8,000 settlement offer. After Mr. Hamp refused to accept this offer, the attorney-client relationship broke down and Attorney Harrison obtained the court's approval to withdraw from the case. Hamp then obtained a new counsel, but the court ultimately found in the employer's favor on the accommodation issue and entered judgment for Hanson Pacific. Hamp then sued Harrison, his former lawyer, and the law firm of Harrison, Patterson, O'Connor, and Kinkeed, alleging attorney malpractice. The primary focus of the complaint was on the third job description produced by Hanson Pacific in the litigation. Hamp alleged this job description was entirely fraudulent and was produced to defraud the court and prejudice the proceedings against him. 
and he alleged that Harrison failed to seek exclusion of the fraudulent job description. But the court granted Harrison's summary judgment motion and dismissed the malpractice case, and this appeal followed. The court affirmed the dismissal in the unpublished opinion. Harrison's litigation strategy was to acknowledge that Mr. Hamp was disabled and could not perform the ready-mix job without accommodation, and to use these facts to support the theory that Harrison considered to be the strongest. That theory was that Hanson Pacific's breached legal duties by failing to engage in the legally required interactive process to identify a position that would accommodate Mr. Hamp's disability. Under this strategy, the difference between the job descriptions was not material. California law requires that an employer engage in an interactive process to determine whether any reasonable accommodation is possible. Whether Mr. Harrison's strategy was a competent one is not a matter of common knowledge. An expert witness was necessary to evaluate whether this litigation strategy was within the range of reasonable tactical decisions. Hamp did not present any expert evidence to support his theory that Attorney Harrison breached his duty by failing to challenge the job description. Generally, expert witness testimony is required in a professional negligence case to establish the applicable standards of care, whether that standard was met or breached by the defendant, and whether the defendant's negligence caused the plaintiff's damages. And now our fraud report. New details emerge about allegations of fake spinal screws implanted into surgical patients by some Southern California hospitals. Spinal Solutions founder Roger Williams spent 16 years in the orthopedic sales business with his father before he went out on his own. He started the company Spinal Solutions in 1999 and launched a firm selling knee and hip implants three years later. From nothing, he built an $18 million a year business based in Murrieta, California. Williams and his wife had a BMW, a Mercedes-Benz, a yacht named Spare Change, and a 6,300-square-foot Murrieta home. He ordered his seven-seat jet painted with stripes of Lakers purple and gold, and he and his wife sat courtside among celebrities at Laker games, according to interviews with former employees. But Spinal Solutions also racked up big debts with hardware manufacturers and then refused to pay. The company increasingly relied on Lenders Funding, a firm that fronted cash at an interest rate of 35%. By 2013, the company owed the lender about $35,000 per month solely in interest payments and imploded in debt. Spinal Solutions could not have raked in millions or spread its products across the U.S. if not for doctors eager to do business. Roger Williams allegedly lured them with private jet plane rides, generous consulting contracts, and even cash. Williams made it clear to his colleagues that the consulting deals and free flights were tools to keep doctors hooked on his products. It all began to unravel in 2009 when evidence of the scheme landed in the receiving room of Ortho Saul, 
a surgical supply firm in South Africa. Orthosol makes precision screws for the most delicate of construction projects, spinal fusion. The company had repossessed some of its screws after Spinal Solutions stopped paying its bills. Testing confirmed some of the returned products were not made of the firm's medical-grade titanium. Also, their uneven threads showed potential for backing out or breaking. The laser-etched markings intended to make them look authentic could also be toxic to patients. More evidence. Derricka Moses, an injured worker, opted for spinal fusion surgery. The procedure offered her little relief. Five years later, she had most of her spinal hardware removed, convinced that the erector set of metal in her spine was a source of ongoing problems. Attorneys contacted Moses after finding her name among Spinal Solutions sales records. Photos of the removed hardware were shown to the South Korean company whose logo was etched on it. Company engineers noted the finishes and lost lot numbers on some of the screws and connectors did not match their product. But the dead giveaway was the logo, which lacked the firm's signature forward-leaning font. The Orange County general manager identified three of the four screws as fakes. The screws, real or fake, all funneled into what the lawsuits claim was a larger scheme to build California's workers' compensation system. Some hospitals build insurance carriers as much as $12,500 per screw before a 2012 change in state law shut down the astronomical markups. Plaintiff attorneys allege that the source of the counterfeit was 85-year-old machinist William Crowder. He owns a small office park machine shop in Southern California's Inland Empire. Crowder said in an interview that Spinal Solutions Operations Manager Jeff Fields gave him professional-looking medical screws and asked for exact copies. Attorneys believe that thousands of counterfeit screws went into unsuspecting patients, though Crowder testified in a recent deposition to making maybe only 500. Crowder also said he did not etch anything on the screws he made for Spinal Solutions. Instead, that trail seems to lead to another Spinal Solutions contractor, Ryan Zavalensky. On his YouTube page, Zavalensky boasts of owning a laser engraver. He also posted photos of spinal implants on his photo-sharing website. Zavalinsky confirmed that he did laser engraving for Spinal Solutions several years ago. He said he engraved only a few screws, however, which he called prototypes. A former U.S. Postal Service employee from South Lake Tahoe has received a one-year prison sentence for making a false statement to obtain workers' compensation. 60-year-old Mark Leung was sentenced in Sacramento by U.S. District Judge John Mendez. In addition to the prison sentence, the judge ordered Leung to pay $160,000 in restitution. 
Court documents indicate Leung worked for the U.S. Postal Service until 1987 when he claimed he suffered a work-related injury. He never returned to full-time employment with the Postal Service and began receiving workers' compensation benefits in 1987. Leung received approximately $160,000 in benefits from the Department of Labor, which administers the program for the U.S. Postal Service. To obtain the benefits, Leung submitted an annual certification form and had his medical providers attest that he could not perform any work due to the pain that limited his mobility and range of movement. But Leung maintained a yearly ski pass for Heavenly Ski Resort where he regularly skied at least 40 days per ski season. In addition, he was observed performing arduous physical labor on numerous days. The case resulted from an investigation by the U.S. Postal Service and the Department of Labor Offices of Inspector General. An investigation by HHS found that the federal insurance program paid nearly $300,000 to cover HIV drugs for about 160 people who were dead when their prescriptions were filled. The report was a reminder that Medicare struggles with fraud, waste, and abuse and remains a drain on the more than $550 billion a year program. Under Medicare Part D, CMS contracts with private insurance companies known as sponsors to provide prescription drug coverage to beneficiaries. The Office of Inspector General says in the report that it has had ongoing concerns about Medicare paying for drugs and services after a beneficiary died. Drugs that treat HIV can be a target for fraud, waste, and abuse, primarily because they can be very expensive. Although this report focuses on HIV drugs, the issues raised are relevant to all Part D drugs. This review looked only at HIV drugs, which account for one quarter of one percent of all Part D drugs. Yet, the findings have implications for all drugs, because Medicare processes records from all drugs the same way. A change in current practices would affect all Part D drugs and could result in significant cost savings for the program and for taxpayers. Another recent OIG report found that nearly 1,600 Part D beneficiaries had questionable utilization patterns for HIV drugs in 2012. In total, Medicare paid $32 million for HIV drugs for these beneficiaries. These beneficiaries had no indication of HIV in their Medicare histories, received an excessive dose or supply of HIV drugs, received HIV drugs from a high number of pharmacies or prescribers, or received contraindicated drugs. These questionable patterns indicate that beneficiaries may be receiving inappropriate or unnecessary drugs. It may also indicate that a pharmacy is billing for drugs that a beneficiary never received or that a beneficiary's identification number has been stolen. Another OIG report found that in 2006 and 2007, CMS paid $3.6 million 
in monthly prospective payments to certain Part D sponsors for deceased beneficiaries. Its system did not always identify and prevent improper payments. And in regulatory news, the DWC has posted adjustments to the hospital outpatient departments and ambulatory surgical centers section of the official medical fee schedule. The amendments confirmed changes in the Medicare payment system as required by Labor Code Section 5307.1. The changes take effect December 1, 2014. The Labor Code provides that the annual inflation adjustment for outpatient hospital facility fees shall be determined solely by the estimated increase in the hospital market basket. Thus, in lieu of using the Medicare 2014 rates to determine the updated OMFS amounts, the estimated increase in the hospital market basket was applied to the 2013 OMFS rate. The 2013 unadjusted conversion factor was $70.76. The estimated increase in the market basket is 2.5%. Thus, the revised unadjusted conversion factor under the OMFS will be $72.53. More information and the adjustments to the hospital outpatient departments and ambulatory surgical centers section of the OMFS can be found on the DWC OMFS webpage. California voters soundly rejected two insurance-related and hotly contested ballot propositions during the last election. One claims it would have halted excessive health care insurance rates, and another that would have raised the state's 39-year-old cap on medical malpractice damage awards. Proposition 45 would have given the state insurance commissioner the power to reject health insurance rate hikes for about 6 million Californians who buy their own policies or who work for small businesses. Supporters said the initiative would stem skyrocketing health care costs. It failed to pass by a wide margin. Although Insurance Commissioner Dave Jones won re-election, he is left with no real power over health insurance rates. Jones has invested significant political capital in campaigning for Proposition 45 and drew the ire of fellow Democrats at times for his criticism of covered California. The commissioner called the election results a major setback. He complained that health insurers flooded Californians with $57 million worth of false television commercials radio ads, and slick mailers. The Consumer Coalition in favor of the proposition simply could not compete with that. But backers see the fight returning to Sacramento possibly with more momentum. Proponents will continue to advocate the simple point that patients should not have to pay premiums deemed unreasonable by regulators. But opponents said that Proposition 45 was an ill-conceived measure that would have been a step backwards against the progress made by the Affordable Care Act and our state's health exchange. The Los Angeles Times laments the loss as a boon for health insurers. The Times went on to say that California's biggest health plans, led by Anthem Blue Cross and Kaiser Permanente, 
spent millions of dollars on ads portraying Proposition 45's rate regulation as a threat to implementation of the health law. In a lopsided result, 60% of voters joined the industry in opposition. And Proposition 46 would have raised the state's 39-year-old cap on medical malpractice damage awards and would have also required doctors to take random drug tests and mandate the use of a database designed to reduce prescription drug abuse. This proposition was also defeated by a wide margin. The defeat came after a cascade of negative advertising financed by insurance and physician groups. They warned the change would send medical costs soaring and drive doctors from the state. Insurance companies, hospitals, and physician groups depicted the proposal as a sugar-coated pill that re is really about fattening attorneys' wallets. A new California law, which takes effect this January, follows the World Health Organization Naloxone Guideline to reduce opioid deaths. Opioids are potent respiratory depressants, and overdose is a leading cause of death among people who use them. Worldwide, an estimated 69,000 people die from opioid overdose each year. Among people who inject drugs, opioid overdose is the second most common cause of mortality after HIV AIDS. A recent rise in opioid overdose deaths in a number of countries is associated with an increase in the prescribing of opioids for chronic pain. An estimated 16,651 people died in 2010 from an overdose of prescription opioids alone in the United States. But new World Health Organization guidelines just released aim to reduce the number of deaths from opioid overdose by providing evidence-based recommendations on the use of naloxone, an antidote for opioid overdose. The guidelines recommend countries expand naloxone access to people likely to witness an overdose in their community, such as friends, family members, and partners of people who use opiate drugs. In most countries, naloxone is currently accessible only through hospitals and ambulance crews who may not manage to get help to the people who need it on time. Risk factors for overdose include higher prescribed dosage, male gender, older age, multiple prescriptions, mental health disorders, and lower socioeconomic status. The risk of overdose is significantly higher where the prescribed dose is 100 milligrams morphine equivalents daily or greater. Opioids depress the respiratory drive and overdose is characterized by apnea, meiosis, and stupor. A severely reduced respiration rate results in cerebral hypoxia and impaired consciousness. Cardiac arrest is a late complication of opioid overdose and secondary to respiratory arrest and hypoventilation. Prolonged cerebral hypoxia is the mechanism for brain injury and death in opioid overdose. The guideline concluded that death in opioid overdose can be averted by 
emergency basic life support and the timely administration of an opioid antagonist such as naloxone. Most opioid overdoses occur in private homes and most of these are witnessed. Naloxone has been used in the management of opioid overdose for more than 40 years. It is a safe drug with a low risk of serious side effects and is a prescription medicine in almost all countries. But the California legislature passed Assembly Bill 1535 this year and it was signed by the governor. The new law adds a section to the Business and Professions Code relating to pharmacists. A California pharmacist will be allowed to furnish naloxone to customers without a prescription. They will have to adhere to standardized protocols developed and approved by both the Pharmacy Board and the Medical Board of California. California, therefore, will provide non-prescription access to naloxone and will be on the forefront of these new World Health Organization guidelines. Claim examiners may wish to take advantage of this new law in cases where risk factors are high for overdose. And in medical news, a new study found that smokers are three times more likely than non-smokers to develop chronic back pain. And dropping the habit may cut chances of developing this often debilitating condition. Since apportionment of permanent disability can be based upon causation, this study may be of interest to the workers' compensation community. The lead author of the study and a technical scientist at Northwestern University, Feenberg School of Medicine, said that smoking affects the way the brain responds to back pain and seems to make individuals less resilient to an episode of pain. This is the first evidence to link smoking and chronic pain with the part of the brain associated with addiction and reward. The results come from a longitudinal observational study of 160 adults with new cases of back pain. They were given MRI brain scans at five different times throughout the course of a year and were asked to rate the intensity of their back pain. Scientists analyzed MRI activity between two brain areas which are involved in addictive behavior and motivated learning. The scientists found that this circuitry is critical in development of chronic pain. These two regions of the brain talk to one another and scientists discovered that the strength of the connection helps determine who will become a chronic pain patient. Researchers said that this circuit was very strong and active in the brains of smokers. They also saw a dramatic drop in this circuit's activity in smokers who quit smoking during the study. So when they stopped smoking, their vulnerability to chronic pain also decreased. Medications such as anti-inflammatory drugs did help study participants manage pain, but it did not change the activity of the brain circuitry. In the future, behavioral interventions such as smoking cessation programs could be used to manipulate brain mechanisms as an effective strategy for treatment of chronic pain. Claims administrators need to rethink the math of lifetime medical reserves as scientists pursue breakthrough anti-aging treatments. 
life science company Calico, which was set up by Google last year to investigate the aging process, joined with U.S. drug maker AbbVie in committing an initial $250 million each to investigate age-related diseases. Switzerland's Novartis and Denmark's Novo Nordisk are already testing new roles for existing drugs, which could keep people alive for longer. The goal is to maximize healthy lifespan and reduce the period of end-of-life sickness and dependency. Baltimore-based biotech company Insilinco Medicine believes shifting healthcare spending from treatment to prevention will be central to this goal. Research into anti-aging drugs has historically received little attention from big pharma given the difficulties of running clinical trials to prove such an effect. Companies have been deterred by regulators in the United States and Europe who will only approve medicines for specific illnesses and not for something as broad as aging. Despite these obstacles, Novartis has completed a successful pilot trial examining its cancer drug and viral lemus as a potential treatment to reverse the gradual deterioration of the immune system that occurs with age and is a major cause of disease and death. Aging is a gradual, decades-long process, making it impractical to assess directly in clinical trials. For aging, you have to pick a target system that can be investigated in months or years, not decades. Experts believe repurposing existing treatments will likely be the fastest way to get drugs with an anti-aging benefit to market. These medicines have already been proven safe. Scientific developments on the horizon now have to be considered when calculating long-term claim reserves in life pension cases and lifetime medical awards. The future is sure to be full of surprises. Laboratory-grown tissues could be one day proven to be a new treatment for injuries and damage to joints, including articular cartilage tendons and ligaments. Cartilage is a hard material that caps the ends of bones and allows joints to work smoothly. UC Davis biomedical engineers are exploring ways to toughen up engineered cartilage and keep natural tissues strong outside the body. They report new developments in the journal proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Engineered cartilage has yet to be tested or approved for use in humans. The current method for treating serious joint problems is with transplants of native cartilage. But medical experts say that this method is not sufficient as a long-term clinical solution. The major component of cartilage is a protein called collagen which provides strength and flexibility to the majority of our tissues, including ligaments, tendons, skin, and bones. Collagen is produced by the cells and made up of long fibers that can be cross-linked together. Researchers have been maintaining native cartilage in the lab and culturing cartilage cells to produce engineered cartilage. In engineered tissues, the cells produce initially an immature matrix, and the maturation process makes it tougher. Knee joints are normally low in oxygen, 
So the researchers looked at the effect of depriving native or engineered cartilage of oxygen. In both cases, low oxygen led to more cross-linking and stronger material. They also found that an enzyme called lysyl oxidase, which is triggered by low oxygen levels, promoted cross-linking and made the material stronger. The ramifications of this work are tremendous with respect to tissue grafts used in surgery, as well as new tissues fabricated using the principles of tissue engineering. Grafts such as cadaveric cartilage, tendons, or ligaments, notorious for losing their mechanical characteristics in storage, can now be treated with the processes developed at UC Davis to make them stronger and fully functional. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.